Okay, reading Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, my God, who's the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Well, this is the beginning of a series of classic uh, subjects, and we're taking this from the Psalms. So Psalm 51, if you have that in front of you, this will be uh, our um, psalm for this evening. It's a psalm of confession, and um, I'm suggesting to you that it is one of the classic psalms in the 150 uh, psalms in uh, the Old Testament. Right at the heart of our Bible is the hymn book of uh, believers. What do we mean by confession? I would have to make a confession to you now that I've often envied Roman Catholic priests. How I would love to be in a confession box and to listen to people. I mean, it, after a while, it would be boring in the extremes. Always the same old stuff, you know. It's not give and take. But, so that people feel they've got it off their chest, whatever the merits of true forgiveness between the mediator and God, that's, a, that's another issue. But just for people to say 
rather than week in, week out, year in, year out, in some cases with some Christians who have very little idea of meaningful confession. What is confession? It is to acknowledge, it is to admit, and it is to declare one's sins, either to, in the privacy of our own prayers, or to a priest, or indeed to a confidant. I hope that you have one, so that you have somebody over the course of time have such proven confidentiality that you can share with them. I hope you've got someone like that. Usually the women are better uh, at that than the men in terms of true, meaningful sharing, confessing. Well, we're familiar with um, these psalms, and no less so this uh, Psalm 51. And if you were to look at all the issues that come out of the Psalms, they seem to reflect all the emotions, give and take, that we are going to experience in our earthly life. The highs and the the lows, the joys and the sorrows, corporate and personal. These are reflected. Here's an interesting thing in the course of preparing this. Um, There are um, Psalms of of lament um, in abundance. And in human life, we have a great deal to lament about personal tragedies and sorrows and heartaches. Interestingly, uh, the Psalms of confession, specific confession, are far fewer. In fact, uh, they'll come up in front of you if you were to make a little study. It would be very profitable to do so. Um, Psalms of confession are quite rare Altogether, there are just uh, seven specific psalms in the whole of 150. So, that's an interesting statistic for its worth, and there you have them. Psalm 6, 33, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. Now, no one is saying there aren't those themes that run through. Of course they do, but those are the classics. The psalms of confession are relatively rare. However, the whole idea of a believing people, of a covenant people, who, if you like, embark on pilgrimage and are doing it together as well as individually, then we need times where confession of sin is an integral part of our faith. And confession of sins is woven through many, many psalms and much wider in the scripture. If you were, for example, to say, those of you who know enough about the Bible, uh, you'd say, well, if Psalm 51 from the book of Psalms is a classic on confession, what would be the New Testament? And uh, we might say, well, and it would be interesting for you to think with the knowledge you have of the New Testament, what for you would be a classic part of the New Testament about confession. Would you go, for example, to the prodigal son? It is very interesting, and often preachers miss this point, or perhaps don't emphasize it as they should, and it's this. It's only after the son comes back. It's only after he says, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Then he called for the fatted calf. We tend to do that before confession, and I don't think that's very helpful. It's a classic that 
Jesus gives. And possibly in the epistles you might want to choose 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. It's a big if, isn't it? So those would be some ideas, just in, by way of introduction, on the whole issue of confession. Uh, I want to read uh, a poem to you by uh, uh, Sir John Betjeman. Uh, if you've got any of his poems, you'll find them quite uh, intriguing. Um, this poem finds its roots in J Sir John Betjeman, as on one occasion he is in Westminster Abbey, and he's observing a woman, and out of it he produces this poem. The woman is, uh, seems to be uh, drawing attention to herself somewhat and uh, rather preoccupied with herself and he says this as if he enters into the woman's experience. She's praying and Sir John Betjeman thinks she prays something like this. Although dear Lord I am a sinner I have done no major crime. And now I come to evening service, whenever I can find the time. So, Lord, reserve for me a crown, and do not let my shares go down. I will labor for thy kingdom, help our lads to win the war, send white feathers to the cowards, join the women's army call. Then, wash the steps around thy throne in the eternal safety zone. Now, I feel a little better. What a treat to hear thy word. Where the bones of leading statesmen have so often been interred. And now, dear Lord, I cannot wait because I have a luncheon date. Now, that is not the way to make your confession. That is not very helpful. Well, what is? Well, uh, an element of true sincerity should characterize, and realism should characterize our confession. We should face the fact that we are sinners, and as Christian people, saved sinners. So let's look at one person for a moment, the author of the psalm, David. David receives the highest accolade that you could have in both Old and New Testament, and it's this. He was a man after God's own heart. And in Acts 13, 32, you'll find that. And he's the author of most, not all, of the Psalms that we sing, and particularly some of the best and the most familiar. But what we have in Psalm 51 is a heart-rending confession. Now this sin, which we'll comment on in a moment, was it a moment of madness on the part of David? Or was it something that had been happening in his life? From the references and the context in the Bible, this wasn't simply a spontaneous, a weak moment. Rather, it reflects a believer who has an incomplete commitment, or let's use a more subjective word, an incomplete surrender to God. For years, David had allowed 
God to be Lord in many parts of his life, which the Psalms reflect, not least the moving, reassuring Psalm 23. Yet, I say to you today that the author of Psalm 23 was the one who had what we can call in some parts of his life a no-go area. An area where he didn't want the Lord to come. And for him, as we see if you know Psalm 51, it's the issue of sexuality. It's the buzzword today. It was his spiritual Achilles heel. The no-go area. Oh, I... As I'm preaching here, I have to ask you and ask myself, what is our no-go area? When I used to visit Hannah's family in Belfast, there were parts of that wonderful city where you couldn't go. Well, what is your no-go area? That big issue for you, is it family? That when the chips are down, that's the most important thing. Is it Money, that your real security in life, when everything has been said, though you're a very fine Christian and pray and so on, really, that is your security. Is it sex? Is it pornography? Or is it pride? Well, you have to go there. And you go there not alone. You take the Lord Jesus with you. David, as is recorded, was a handsome man. A Scottish poet used to say about the swan is a beautiful bird, but an arrogant beast. And beauty is a fickle thing. But not to put a finer point on it, David was handsome in physique, in personality, and in remarkable gifts of poetry and leadership, endowed with exceptional gifts. He was also famous. He was also wealthy. And add to that, if you were to read in 1 Samuel 18, the women of the day made a pop song about him. Yes, Saul has killed his hundreds, David his thousands. What a big hunk he is. That's the context. Now you always have to be careful, spiritually or whatever. You put people on a pedestal, the higher they are, the more they'll fall. And David's fall was a great tragedy which he never fully recovered from. When these events took place, David was probably in his early 50s. So don't say, this is a sermon for the young people. How wrong we are. And think of the breakup of, of marriages and relationships. Often that's the sort of age group. Sexual sins are no respecter of age. I, as you know, I was relating this on Thursday, attended a, a funeral in Tame, and I introduced myself to a man I'd never met before. Um, and uh, he told me that he worked in Oxford. He was the successor to a man who, in the evangelical world, wrote three books on ethics. And he was his successor, and he said to me, do you know, for four years he was having a relationship with his secretary and writing books and going around the world preaching about ethics. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that amazing? Now, you don't say those things simply to 
make an impact. I'm saying it because it's easy to preach about prayer and not to pray. To, to warn people about sex but have a problem about sex. To say, yes, watch money and yet have money as our ultimate God. All those things. Well, David looked at Bathsheba. She was very beautiful. She was bathing and he lusted for her. He went to sleep with her. And then there's an unexpected pregnancy. So he calls his leader of his uh, army who's fighting to come home and to say spend time with your wife and your family in the hope that when a child came he would be the father and Uriah the Hittite he's not a child of the covenant doesn't know but spiritually the things that David knew and he says how can I do that when my men are fighting I can't do that David gets him drunk and he still won't do that. Now David is a brilliant military man. He's got strategy and tactics. But he panics. And he begins to manipulate. Eventually, he gets the husband of Bathsheba, Uriah, to go into the heat of the battle. And he's killed. I wouldn't doubt that David made a great duration and said what a wonderful man he was in the temple. Isn't that incredible? Life goes on. A child is born. And David is writing great poems. Like people who write them and they're sung at spring harvest and people say, what a writer, what a great leader. I'm so moved when I sing these songs. What, how God has blessed this person. <coughs> and it all goes pear-shaped when one thing happens. David is in the temple. And there's a prophet, Nathan. He's an abrasive prophet who, unlike many of others, talks about sin a lot. We don't like that. I don't like that. And this is what he does. Turn with me to um, page 315. That's Second Samuel. This is his sermon. It's a cracking sermon. I'd love to preach that. Just look at it. So you've got the context now. Most of the sermon, you'll be pleased to know, is background to the psalm. And we'll come to this in a moment. But there it is. This is Psalm uh, 1, Second Samuel 11 and 12. So life goes on. David has covered his tracks. He's praying. He's writing poems. He's singing psalms. He's quite happy. And in 2 Samuel 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, look at this, this is the sermon. Now try to emotionally, not intellectually, enter into this. There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms when he sat in the armchair. It was the family pet. It was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep, herds of sheep or cattle, to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ill lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. End of sermon. And David burned with anger against the man. And Nathan said, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who does this deserves to die. Is this righteous anger on David's part? Nathan's not very impressed, is he? And he says, David, you're the man. You're the man. Well, you can read the rest. It's quite fascinating, really, just to see how this psalm came to be born. It's born out of that mess. Here's an interesting observation about human nature. Isn't it very easy to get all heated about other people's sins and in conversation hear people say or say yourself isn't it can't believe he could do that I mean that is amazing and yet either consciously or otherwise you're actually doing it yourself that's what that's that's what's happening here it's quite salutary isn't it when you think about that well that's the background Let's very quickly then look at the psalm, and it is quickly, and we've just got these three quick headings. The first, so when Nathan points David to his hypocrisy and his sin of orchestrating the murder of Uriah, and subsequently the death of the baby, and the breakup of his family, and many commentators say David was never the same after this, even though the Lord forgave him. Three things. And this psalm, it just jumps out to you, and you, you may want to follow it as I comment very quickly. Uh, verses 1 to 7. Cleanse me. Cleanse me. What dirt is to our hands, sin is to our soul. I was trying to work in the garden yesterday in the soil, so wet and damp that every time I planted things, my hands were filthy, dirty. I bucket of water, may plunge them in a clean, then go on. And then the, the, the trowel was dirty and the fork was dirty and everything I touched was dirty. Sin isn't just a, an isolated thing. It affects everything that I touch. What dirt is to our hands, sin is to our hearts. And as for David, he learned to live with himself. He compromised his sin. You can rationalize on anything if you really want to. But now he says, he uses this very strong word, verse 1, this word, transgression. You see it? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgression. <coughs> What's transgression? Well, transgression is this. Consciously, as in the case of David, going into forbidden territory. As a believer, you have no right to go there. Whether that's mentally or physically, don't go there. 
Or, use another word. You are walking through a moral minefield. That's transgression. And there's an interesting phrase here in verse 1, blot out, blot out. Um, it's, it's taken from the ledger. I'm in debt. I'm up to my neck in debt and I need it to be blotted out. But no one can pay it. I can't pay it. And the whole point of the prayer of confession is there is somebody who can and somebody who's paid the ultimate penalty on the cross. And so, this hymn, and it would be sung much better than the other one, which was a bit of a dirge, actually, and it shouldn't have been. Um, there it is. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And look at verse 4. Yes, David had sinned. And, you, and you, you, you need to read it carefully because it's easy to misunderstand that. What's he saying? Against you, you only have I sinned. Oh, hold on a minute. No, he's not saying he hasn't sinned against Bathsheba or Uriah or the child that was born or the tragedy that impacted his family. And the civil war that came out subsequently with Absalom. I mean, like father, like son. He had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and his family. But what he is saying is this, all sin supremely is against God. It's against him primarily. It's against the Lord. And David knew, I am in a bad place. I'm in a bad place. He lied to himself. He was living a lie. He lied to the people, to his family, and to God. And out of it comes this prayer, surely. Now, look at this, verse 6. You desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in my inmost place. And using the language of the Old Testament, which he'd be familiar with, cleanse me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than the driven snow. Cleanse me. Very quickly, moving on, 8 to 12. Restore me. Can I put it like this? If cleanse me is the sinner's prayer, then surely restore me is the believer's prayer, the Christian's prayer. Restore me. What, what are you restoring? Well, I'm not where I should be. I'm not what I ought to be. And, and I need you to restore me back again to that right relationship. As I consider the impact of unconfessed sin... This is not exaggerated language, and I'd just prefer the psalm to speak for itself. Look at its impact. You, you, you follow the verses for the sake of time. This is what I'm pursuing, okay? Consider the impact of unconfessed sin in our lives. Number three, verse three, our eyes. Verse six, our mind. Verse eight, our hearing. And our feeling. Verse 10, our heart and our spirit. Verse 13 to 15, our lips. That's, pretty, that's a big impact, isn't it? Massive impact. I'm not hearing as I should. I don't see things as God wants me to see. My mind isn't, isn't clear. It's blurred. It's compromised. It's fuzzy. 
And I'm indifferent to the feelings of others because I'm so wrapped up in myself. Sin takes its toll on us. And it destroys relationships. And David knew that he needed restoration. He needed restoration in all these areas of his life. What he sees, what he thinks, what he hears, what he feels, what, he, what, what, what his spirit senses, what his lips say. And it's an interesting prayer, isn't it, in verse 15, and it's particularly perhaps applicable to me. I'm speaking, you're listening. Look, what is it? Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips, then my mouth will sing your praise. We need the Lord to open our lips so that which we say is authentic. All these areas of life, he had grieved the Holy Spirit. So I want to ask you a question. We're nearly finished. Do you have a willing spirit? That was his prayer. A willing spirit. I often say in church life, you know, that there are people who are willing but not able. And sadly and conversely, there are able people who are not willing. You be willing, and whatever your ability, high or low, God will use you for sure. And the issue is, how willing are you? Not how able are you? It's so easy, isn't it, to be grudging. Grudging with our time. Grudging with our money. Grudging with our families. A willing spirit. And finally, and surely there's a progression here, isn't it? You could see it in the psalm. Cleanse me. Restore me. And the last part Use me. You, I don't think the Lord can use us until we've sorted some of these things out. There is a progression. You can see it. And this most uh, crucial, uh, which I've highlighted in verse 13, there's a big build-up with all of this, isn't there? And then you get this one word, then I will teach transgressors. Then I'll do that. And chances are, that David hadn't done that for a very long time. There's a play on words, isn't there? Unless this, then there won't be that. Unless the Lord opens my lips, what's the point? Unless the Lord restores me and fills me again with his spirit, what can I do? Unless the Lord opens my lips... I will speak and I will sing. Or what he says in verse 15, I will declare your word and I will declare your praise. Now, just one note to conclude and it's this. The Lord forgave David's sin, for sure. But David had to live with the consequences. And so did other people. Isn't it great that sometimes you can leave a legacy of grace 
because you are somebody who has taken confession seriously. The Lord forgave David's sin, but he had to live with the consequences. It sounds cruel when you read on in 2 Samuel 12, 13 to 17. Remember, time to read it now. The child dies, and David is distraught. He is inconsolable. And on the surface, it sounds cruel. But does God delight to crush and humiliate? No. But he looks for sincerity, integrity, and humility. And that is a classic, a classic of confession. We close with what was our memory verse a few years ago. The Lord has shown you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? He wants you to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly, to love to forgive people, to carry no grudges, to do what is just, and to walk humbly before God with all the time that we have in this earthly life. May our heart be true to the Lord. We're going to sing.